our series is called, okay, our series is called My Love, okay? Because that's the word that is used in Song of Solomon over and over again is, is this term, my love, or my beloved, your version might say, okay? But it's this idea of my love, my love. And, and, and it's, it's two people that are responding back and forth and you're using this term, my love. And that song, if you really read the song, you'll find that that song is actually like, like one of the best songs if it's focused on God. Like, like if God's singing that song to his people, it's like an amazing song. And when my kids were young, they would always want to download songs. And one of the things I would make them do before they could download a song is I would say, you've got to tell me how you can redeem it. Like, tell me the redemptive quality of the song. Tell me how this song could, could be something good and point to something biblical and great about like who God is in, in our world. Like, like they would have to do that. And there were certain songs they never got to download. Like, like for example, when when uh, Lady Gaga did Poker Face, and it's got that really cool beat, you know, da, 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 da. I mean, you know, and they're like, oh, I like that song. I'm like, there's no redeemable quality in that song. I'm sorry. Like, find it. And they would argue with me. And, well, yeah, there is. It's talking about putting on a face, and we're, we put on a face, and we're hypocrites, and they're trying to explain that. And I'm like, yeah, but she's saying that it's a positive thing we do that, not a negative, right? Like, they're like, yeah, but that, like, we would get in these discussions about this. And so when I read the lyrics to the, to that great 60s song, Never My Love, it's amazing. I'd encourage you to look at the lyrics because that's what we're going to look at today. The writer of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs is Solomon, the wisest man to ever live other than Jesus Christ. God gave him uncharacteristic wisdom. He writes three books. He writes a passionate book. He writes a, uh uh-oh, I better get some wisdom and do some smart things. I can't just live on passion. And then he writes Ecclesiastes, and that book was Proverbs. Then he writes Ecclesiastes because he realizes passion and wisdom still lead to nothing. It's still meaningless. We die, and then what? So he writes three books as the wisest man in the world. And this was the first one when he was younger he wrote because he was full of passion. Now you have to remember, when we read this book, Solomon is talking to one of his wives. One. One of 700. Now, at this time, he didn't have 700 wives. He, he probably only had somewhere in the hundreds. But anyway, so, like, one of 700. This guy was the wisest man, but he still was an idiot. Like, he still followed his passion, which is why Ecclesiastes says, I didn't deny anything, myself, anything under the sun, and it just led to meaningless. And when this book starts with this incredible passion, it culminates in a marriage. It, it talks about the struggles of marriage a little bit and, and not being together and what that feels like. And then it ends kind of like, and we're still not good. Like that's this book. And it's amazing to me because it's so wonderful that in our culture today, everyone's looking for like this love and this passion, but nobody's looking at it from God because we have allowed the world and we've allowed Satan to have the sexual ethics, the sexual ethos of our day. You see, we believe in a God that combines the physical and the spiritual together. He overlaps them. He became God in the flesh. Not like Buddhism that says everything that you see is fake. All this is unreal and you need need to go meditate yourself on a mountain until you die and then you'll reach nirvana. That's the highest form of meditation is going up on a mountain, meditating, disconnecting from the world and all your responsibilities completely selfishly and dying on a mountain and you get to go to nirvana. 
That is not our book. Or, like in Islam, it's the domination of this world where you're at right now, that you have a job to dominate, to make people obey. And if they won't obey, you have the right to kill them, to put, do whatever you need to do to them, to, to dominate the physical world and leave the spiritual results up to God in the end. Christianity brings the spiritual and the physical together. And this book is one of those books that does that. And it's one of those books, and it's the reason why so many people have had problems with this book. This book has been a problem for theologians. It was a problem for the Jews way back when. They were afraid to let people read this book. Why? Because we won't talk about real stuff. Listen. I guarantee you the world loves to talk about sex. The world loves to talk about romance. Every movie has to have a romance component to it. You can't watch Avengers without a romance part to it. Can we just leave that out? I want to watch stuff blow up. I want to watch fake aliens die. That's what I want to watch. What do I have to watch people fall in love? I don't care. Right? Like we were talking about Top Gun and the song was on a minute ago. It was the Top Gun love song. I'm like, I just fast forward through that part. I want to hear Highway to the Danger Zone when the jets are like, that's what I want to see, right? Like, and the reason we're so messed up in our culture is because we won't preach books like this. We won't go after the heart. We won't look at God as a God who is completely intimate with his people. That uses the intimacy of marriage as his number one example of a relationship with him. Holy smokes. That's uncomfortable for me as a man. Maybe not for you as a woman because Jesus was a dude. That's uncomfortable for me. But that's because I'm twisted. Not because God's twisted. It's because I twist it, not because he has. And this book is beautiful because it unravels the real story. It takes real marriage, real relationship, real passion. And if you just take a minute and look at the imagery, which we're going to do today, and we are going to go through a ton of script, we're going to fly. And when you see the imagery and the comparison that all these images that Solomon is talking about are all images God does in Scripture, commands his people to use to worship him. So if that doesn't intrigue you, think about this. This morning's message is this, and it's my delight, or more delightful than. My love, more delightful than. What in your life do you love that's more delightful to you than God? You can find it pretty easy. What's your thing that you typically sin doing the most? And you'll find your delight. Do you like getting that zinger in and sticking it to people? Well, there's your delight. You love to be right. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to be right. It's what's the heart behind the right. Do you love just trying to please everybody? You don't want to walk the boat? You just... You want people to find their delight in you, not actually confront them about their sin and have to define their delight in God? Then you found your idol. You found what you delight in more than him. You see, people know all the things we delight in, right? They can tell you, oh, yeah, he likes dark chocolate espresso beans. That's Matt. That, that's, I've heard him talk. Yeah, he likes this. He, like, we can list all the things, and then people sometimes are shocked when he loves Jesus, she loves Jesus. Why, why isn't that on our lips? I don't know about you, but I talk about the things I love, including Christ. Why is it we feel like we have to hide that love? 
Like if I did that to my wife, if I worked, I've said this before, but if I worked at a business and I've been working there three, six months, a year, two years, however long, and one day the, I started, I said, well, you know, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I have a wife. I don't wear a wedding ring. I don't talk about her ever. And all of a sudden everybody's like, wait, what? You have a wife? Where's the picture? You got no pictures on your desk? You don't wear a ring? Really? Well, that's shocking. People should know that we delight in Christ. And this book is a picture of what it looks like for everyone to take their delight in the sexual ethos that God's given. There are even young women in this book who are praising what's going on. They're like cheering them on. That should make you uncomfortable. But that's the Bible. We cheer on that people would be intimate with God. So let's dive in. Song of Solomon 1.1 says this. Solomon's finest song. In other words, the Song of Solomon means the best of all songs. Solomon probably wrote well over a thousand songs in his lifetime. That's a lot of songs. He wrote a lot because he was a wise person. And he wrote poetry, he wrote facts, he wrote all kinds of stuff. That's what he did. He was a wise person. And he just, and so this was one of like a thousand. But this psalm, this song is the wisest. It's the best of the best is what the title of this is. And look at it. Let's read it. The woman is the first to speak. What you're going to see is some dialogue. You'll see a W for woman, an M for man, a Y for the young daughters around them in Jerusalem. There's different conversations. Listen, this can be a little divisive. Some people wonder, well, who's talking when and this kind of thing. This is, it's hard to unpack Song of Solomon because it's poetry. Sometimes it's so, I'm doing the best I can here. You can check me on it. And just know that many people want to interpret Song of Solomon either only in the physical There's no spiritual component, or only in the spiritual. In other words, God wrote this, but he really doesn't want us to have relationships that are this passionate. Right? I think that's both wrong. I think God sandwiches those together because that's what he did in his son, Jesus Christ, to make him fully man and fully God. So here we go. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, with an exclamation point in the Hebrew. Like, Oh my. If that doesn't kind of, whew, gets a little hot under the collar, that's how the book starts out. Like there's no doubt where this book is going, right? Like here, here we go, baby. And then he goes, for your love is more delightful than, and she fills in the blank with wine. It's more delightful than like having a glass of, like I long to just, oh, wine was something, it was the only safe drink typically of this time period. You have to remember that. Water wasn't necessarily safe. It depended on if it was coming out of a spring or not, okay? But wine was always safe to drink because it was fermented. So so wine was the drink that was like used at party everywhere because it was the safe drink, So she's saying, it's more delightful, more safe to me. Your love is more than anything that could fill me up. Then she says, the fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let us hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me into his chambers. Holy smokes. Whew. Like... You may have never read this book, not even know this is in the Bible. This, look, God's saying this is beautiful. And this is imagery of how God's church should be after Christ. 
Christ calls himself the bridegroom and calls us the bride. Now, I'm going to unpack that here for a second. Let's look. When it comes to these kisses, these verses, Romans, Corinthians, Corinthians, Peter, all of these verses say, greet one another with a holy kiss in the New Testament. A holy kiss. There is a holy kiss. It is not wrong for people who are courting, who have been arranged in marriage, which we find out later that is the case because they wouldn't be allowed to have this kind of relationship had they not been arranged in marriage. We find out that they're moving towards the date of marriage because then he comes and gets her, which is the sign of marriage. We'll see that later. So, so they are courting and she's like, oh, you know, it's great to talk to you. It's great to kiss you on the cheek like everybody else does, but man, I want your lips. I, I want it all. I want to go all the way with you. And see, that's... We're to greet one another with kisses. We don't do that today. Why? Because we've turned kissing and touching and everything so sexual and upside down, you can't touch anybody without them freaking out today. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily, because there's some weird people out there. Okay? I get it. But the Bible, the New Testament church, you would walk in the door and Brian would not be like, please come in. He'd be like, oh, mwah, mwah, like they do in France, giving you smooches. Come on in. And you'd be like, ah, I'm not coming back to this church. I'll find another one. Thank you. Because we can't stand intimacy with people. Just leave me alone. Keep my distance. I'm good. You're good. Nah. I want control. I don't want anybody. Goes on and says this in Luke. So he got up and went to his father. This is the story of the prodigal son. But while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. His son that had squandered everything, made his life a wreck. And it says he ran through his arms around his neck and he kissed him. A father running, grabbing his son and kissing him. I don't think he was like, hi son. I think he was like, blah, blah, blah. I think it was like blubbery, like ooh. Don't do that, Right? Because his son was found. There was affection. Goes on, it says, then the son said to him, look at the son. The father's giving this, him this affection, and this is what happens in the book we'll see in a minute. The son says, oh, no, 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 father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. The father's like, yeah, I know, but I still want to be intimate with you, even though you're a mess. That's what Jesus, that's what we just sang a minute ago. So Jesus came to heaven. He said, I know the world's a mess. I know it's cursed. I know it's a disaster. And I'm going to come and put myself in a human body to be intimate with humans. That's our God. He doesn't shy away from this stuff. Then he goes on. It says this in Luke 22. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob was there that Jesus was speaking. And one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. This is at the end when, Judas is, or when Jesus is betrayed in the garden. He's been praying all night. Judas shows up. He came near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You could have betrayed me anyway. You could just told them where I was at, but really you had to come and make it this intimate, the betrayal this intimate? Yeah, because that's what we experience in our marriages. It's what we experience in our lives. It's what we experience every day. And Jesus is like, I didn't, I didn't protect myself from any of the same messes you have to deal with. 
People betray. And he prayed that Judas wouldn't do this. He asked Judas not to do this. And Judas is trying to cover up his real motives with a kiss. Well, if I'm affectionate and I try to show him, then maybe he won't know that I'm really betraying him. How sad. Goes on. It says, The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. <laughs> Read this in Exodus. You're to make an altar for the burning of incense made of acacia, make it of acacia wood. Aaron must burn incense or fragrant incense on it. He must burn it every morning when he tends the lamps. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he must burn incense. There's to be an incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. That's like forever. The Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices, uh, stack it, onketh, and galbanum, and the spices and pure frankincense are to be in equal measures. Prepare expertly blended incenses from these. It is to be seasoned with salt, pure and holy. Grind some of it into a fine powder. Put some of it in front of the testimony of the tent of meeting where I will meet with you to be intimate with you even though you're sinful. Then he goes on and he says, grind, or he goes on and he says, as for the incense you are making, you must not make any for yourselves using its formula. It is to be regarded by you as sacred to the Lord. Anyone who makes something like it to smell its fragrance must be cut off from his people. That's like marriage. God designed the marriage relationship between a male and a female, a man and a woman, to be something intimate. And if you mess with that, he's like, don't do it. I have designed this for a purpose. Don't go make your own relationships for the own way you want to do things. Do the way I've asked you to do it. If not, you'll be cut off. You're going to feel cut off. You're going to feel distant from me if you don't do it my way. He goes on and he says this in Ephesians. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as the Messiah, that's Jesus, also loved us and gave himself for us. Look at this. A sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. This woman is asking and talking about the fragrant offerings and God is saying, I am your fragrant offering. It goes on and it says, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you. It's proper, as is proper for the saints. Coarse and foolish talking or crude joking are not to be suitable, but rather give thanks. This woman and man, as you read Song of Solomon, are giving thanks to one another. They don't, we'll see in a minute, awaken love till it's time. They wait. And it's a beautiful thing. Look at Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It says, for this reason, God highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and gave him a name that is above every name. Remember, she said, your name is the most fragrant perfume. And he says, so that the name of, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those that are on heaven or in heaven and those on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody's going to confess he's the most fragrant Goes on in Song of Solomon. It says, take me with you. Let us hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me into his chamber. See, she knows where the relationship's going. She knows that he is going to come for her because that's what you do in a wedding in those days. We'll see in just a second. And she's stating the obvious. I state all the time, I want to be in heaven. I don't want to be here. <laughs> Say it all the time. That doesn't mean 
I take out a gun and end my life. Any more than I look at you and say, well, I really want to be with you, honey, so let's just sleep together. No, it's not time. That's not how God's made things work. He goes on and it says this. In John 14, your heart must not be troubled. Jesus recognizes that there are trouble in the world, trouble in relationships. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Listen, at a wedding, what would happen is that the male would build a room onto the back of his Father's house. He would prepare, he would save, he would use the dowry to do that. It was all a process of courtship, and the entire, both families, because the marriage was a reign, both fathers agreed, they would agree to go get the woman, he would go get her, take her to the father's house to consummate, consummate the marriage, have sex, in the room while the wedding party waited. Talk about pressure. And they would wait. They'd wait. And then when it was done, they would come out. Everybody would celebrate. Woo! Let's party. They've cons- they're married. They consummated the marriage. It's beautiful. He prepared a place for her. He went and got her. This is glorious. When Jesus shares this passage, everybody would have been like, ooh, he's not, I don't like this reference you're making. Eh. Going to get the woman. I know what's getting ready to happen on the other side. And Jesus is like, why do you always think about sex? Why is your mind so twisted? It's about intimacy. He goes on and he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way I'm going. Of course, they didn't. One of the disciples said, oh, I know we don't. (laughs) Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the chamber, the sanctuary, through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. This is what would have happened for a girl getting ready to be taken to the, to the house. She would have cleansed, cleansed herself and gotten ready, and God, the, the, they would have sent a wedding party over to help her get ready, just like we do today. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You'll see the women in this passage encouraging the young man and young woman as they keep getting closer. They're encouraging them. This is good. Don't, don't, but but be careful. Like, these are the scriptures that God uses that, in, listen, when he would have spoke these things, when Jesus would have said these things, they would have triggered analogies in their culture. It would have triggered things for them to think about that they didn't want to think about. And he says, look, don't be so concerned about your own lust, but be concerned about what God says is loving and good to do to others. What does God say is the loving thing to do? What does God say is the loving work to do? Sometimes telling someone the truth, telling them no, pushing them away is the loving thing to do. We see that in this passage. (laughs) Goes on and it says this, Revelation 19, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder. 
saying hallelujah. Oops, sorry. My bad. One more. Okay. Hang on. It goes on, it says this. Song of Solomon 1.4 says this. We will rejoice and be glad for you. We will praise your love more than wine. It is only right that they adore you. This is what I was just talking about. These young women, he says, I will re-, the young women say, we are going to rejoice and be glad for you. In other words, they're not looking and going, well, psh, stupid relationship. I, I don't have a man. It's hard for me to go to weddings and watch that. I, I, just, I Man, I wish I had a wife like her because mine's a pain in the... Ugh. No, these young women, they're like, we genuinely are rejoicing with you. We are glad and we will praise you and praise your love more than anything else. We are going to delight in the love that we see more than anything else. That's what we should be doing for one another and pointing people to our relationship with Christ. Encourage one another as you see the day coming. It's coming. Don't, don't, don't cheat on him. You, you got this. Like, he loves you. He's coming. I don't know if he's ever coming. It's been, we've been engaged for like five years. No, no. It's, you. And the woman says, yep, it's only right that they adore you. In other words, it's not the attention. She didn't say, yeah, that's right. That's right. Me, women. I got him. You don't. No, 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 boo-boo. No, no. That's not what she says. She says, yeah, I get why they adore you. And I don't understand why you love me, and that's what she's getting ready to say in just a moment. He goes on and it says this, daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Keter, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me a keeper of the vineyards. I've, I've not kept my own vineyards. Do you see the humility of this woman? These women are praising her, and it should be her moment to be like, yeah. And she's like, why me? Why would you choose me? I've been darkened. I I haven't kept my vineyard. She's, She's pouring her heart out here. She's struggling. She's saying, I was forced to have to work. I was forced into this. I, listen, some of you may have had things happen to you that you didn't have a choice about. That should break your heart like this woman. And you should hear the words of Solomon as he speaks back to this woman because it's incredibly beautiful. And it's a picture of what God says when we come to that place, when I come to that place, say, how could God love me? How could he use me? How could he want me? Look at what God says. He goes on, he says this. Tell me, you, the one I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? She looks and she says, I don't feel worthy, but but, but I want to see you. Because I know if I can see you, I know if I can be with you, I won't feel this way. And so where are you? He's off doing his job. He's off working like he's supposed to. He's not just cuddling with her all day long. He's got a job to do. That's life. 
And she's like, I want to be near you. And it says, I don't want to be someone who veils her face besides the flocks of your companions. What that means is that's what the prostitutes would do. The prostitutes of that day would put veils on, go sit by the shepherds, and then get paid to have sex with the shepherds because the shepherds don't go home. They stay out in the sheep in the fields for like months watching their sheep. So they don't get to come home too much. So the women would veil themselves and they'd be like, ooh, 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 with the veil and come on. That they would attract, that's what they would do. They would hide themselves. They wouldn't show themselves. And she's like, I don't want to become that. I don't want to become someone that's looking for something more. I want to find my satisfaction in you. I want to find my delight in you. I don't want to hide anymore. I don't, I don't want that. But I'm struggling here because I, I feel the distance. Look at what he says. If you don't know, most beautiful of women, (laughs) hey, the most beautiful of women to me. If you don't know, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture young goats near the shepherd's tents. In other words, bring goats in. There's a distraction. You got to watch goats and they don't want the goats there and they won't like you too much because you're bringing goats into the sheep. (laughs) Like, Protect yourself. Put a barrier. And then he says, just follow the flocks. That's that's how people find Christ. They follow us. (laughs) We're his sheep. We are to lead people to him. And if we're walking in the wrong direction, people will follow us in the wrong direction. And he looks and he says, hey, my, my sheep will follow. He goes on, look at what he says. This is what Jesus said about this. I assure you, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The the doorkeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own outside, he goes ahead of them. That means he's ahead, protecting. He's the point man. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Stranger danger. Anyway, a thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, loves, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. In other words, he says he loves, he says he cares, but when it gets hard, you run. And that's all I see happening today. And I'm sick of it. People running from every responsibility because I'm owed something. I'm entitled. I have a right. And Jesus said, I didn't run from my sheep. I called them. I said, this is where I'm going. And they followed me and I protected them. And I gave my life for them. He goes on and he says, the wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired man. He doesn't care about the sheep. There are a lot of hired relationships out there. People getting in relationships for what they can get. People going to churches, the bride of Christ, for what they can get. Not for what they can give. Not for what they can surrender of themselves. And the church is silent about this stuff. And we've got a whole book that like puts this on display, the passion that we should have for Christ. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me as the father knows me. And I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, my dad tells me what to do and I do it and you have to follow that. 
And he goes on and he says, I lay down my life, but I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I'm laying down my life so I may take it up again. You want to know why most of us don't experience the love of God? Because we won't lay down our life. We're trying to take up the life we want and keep trying to get it, and God's going, that ain't going to work. You're going to feel miserable. But if you'll surrender your life to follow me, if you'll surrender to me, then you can have the promise that one day I'm going to give you a new life, a new body, a resurrection that's going to be incredible. He goes on in Song of Solomon and says, the man says, he's not done yet. Remember, he said, oh, how beautiful you are, darling. Oh, he's, he's not done making sure she understands how valuable and loved and cared for she is. Look at this. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you, accented with silver. Whew, again, a little hot under the collar, right? He's like, you are like a mare. All of Pharaoh's chariots, all of them were stallions. The entire chariot army of Pharaoh were all stallion horses, not geldings. They didn't snip it off so they weren't wild. They were wild stallions. You put a mare into the mix of that, whew, it gets crazy. Stallions can't focus. You're like the mare, you're the mare that like, you're the special one that Pharaoh would say, this mare is going to be the one that that makes all the rest of the stallions for me and my army. Like this is like, you are so valuable to me. You stand out. You're not like the rest. And then he says, your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry. He doesn't say you need jewelry. He doesn't say you need, he says, you're, you are all, you're brown. Remember, she said I'm brown because I've had to work outside. She's a redneck, literally. She is a redneck. That's what she says. My face and my neck are tanned. And he's like, and I think it's beautiful. It's, it's perfect the way it needs to be. That's what I love about you. You're a worker. You're a servant. You're out there. You're obedient. Oh, I love all that about you. That's why I look at that and I'm like, I want to put jewelry on your cheeks and and neck so people say, look at my woman how she serves. Look at how she does what's right. Like, I I don't want to hide that. That's beautiful to me. See, that's what God wants to tell us. He wants to take what we think is ugly and he wants to say, do you know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose? He wants to take the ugly parts that we look at and he wants to say, no, let me have those. I'll, I'll, I'll transform them. Look at what he says. He goes on and says this in 2 Corinthians. This is what Paul writes. But he said to me, Paul is struggling three times. He's asked God to take away something from him. His cheeks, his, I don't know, something he doesn't like about his life that's, that he's struggling with. This thing that's keeping him from really feeling fulfilled. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness, Paul said, so Christ's power may reside in me. I'm going to say, look at my brown, look at my red, and look at the jewelry Christ put on me. Then he says, so I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because, not because those things are good, not because I wanted burnt skin, I take pleasure in it because I understand what Christ is going to do for me and is doing for me now. And then he says, for when I am weak, oh, then, then I am strong. Then the woman responds. After he says this, now it gets, whoo, she responds and says, oh my gosh, That is so beautiful. And she's like, 
while the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. My love is a sack of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. My love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of Engadi. And you're like, I'm getting a little flustered here. I mean, she's laying it out. She's like, oh, that you would, that you would look at me that way just makes me look at you and say, I'm, wow, how beautiful you are. And that's exactly what he says. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. Doves were both innocent, but they were also the sacrifice of the poor. The poor couldn't give a lamb, so God said, I understand that you may not be able to afford or raise a lamb. You can go catch some doves and bring it as your sin sacrifice, and you will open up the breasts of the dove, clean it out, and those breasts will be open before me, and then it will go on the offering as a burnt aroma to me. This is, like the imagery here is just, Wow! I mean, you're talking millions of doves a year that get sacrificed. And he lays this out. All of this. And then he goes on. Look at Luke. Look at how people responded. The women responded to Jesus in his day. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. That's what she was saying. I want to come. I want to be with you. I want to recline with you. I want to be there. So one of the Pharisees did. Look at this. And reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. She had bad coloring. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. It would have filled the room, this smell, this, like, this would have been very valuable, probably since she was a sinner, this last thing she had left to give. This was the alabaster jar between her breasts that she is pouring on who she believes is the one. And then it says, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. She understands that I am the beloved. She delights in me more than what that little jar represented. She, delights, she has nothing to give a husband now if she pours out this alabaster jar. She has no dowry. He goes on, he says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I love you. You're clean. You have a new start with me. Wow. That's not the only story. Read this one. It goes on. And in Matthew 26, there's another story. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, a man who had a serious skin disease, a woman approached him with another alabaster jar, a very expensive fragrant oil. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Do you want to know what divides more Christians today than anything else? The social gospel. And it divided the disciples. 
It's going to cause Judas to betray Jesus because Jesus wasn't on board with the social gospel program he had. Should we serve the poor? Should we serve those? Absolutely. But the disciples are saying, you let this woman waste this. No, 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 no. She was giving that to me as an act of worship. You shut your face. That's what Jesus is getting ready to tell them. He goes on and he says, by pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. I assure you, whenever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world today, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. The one, then one of the 12, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? I'm tired of this lover. How dare he let people just waste stuff? She wasn't wasting. These women weren't wasting. They were giving everything to him. And they couldn't see it. Why? Because they were men. And they were women. These were women that probably, if they were sinners, knew the Song of Solomon and wondered if there'd ever be a man that would find me. And they were willing to give it all while these Pharisees and even this disciple and some of the disciples didn't get it. They didn't get the intimacy. Goes on and says this, how handsome you are, my love. How delightful. Our bed is lush with foliage. The beams of our house are cedars and our rafters are cypress. I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. She's getting it now. She's like, oh, I am valuable. Oh, I, she says, you have prepared a place for me. You've gotten ready, right? Most women in our culture have to get the guy to propose. This guy's gotten it ready for her. He's ready to propose. He's prepared a place for her. He's gotten his life in order and his finances in order. Like, he's prepared to do this with her. Where are those men in our culture? And he says, she says, that's just, and because you've done that, I know that I'm special. I know that, that there's no one like me. You haven't done that for any other woman, and you shouldn't. Because it's a personal relationship, but it's a community as well. And he goes on and he says, like a lily among thorns. She says, I'm the lily of the valley. And he goes, oh, you are right. You're like a lily among thorns. All the rest of them women are just thorns in my side. But you, <laughs> you're not a thorn. So is my darling among the young women. Oh, she's beautiful. She sticks out to me. I, I just, I can't. Listen, the, the word lily is Shushan in Hebrew. That means Susan. My wife's name. We named my daughter Micaiah Susanna, which is also from the root of this Hebrew word, Lily. And I can tell you that when Susan and I came together, it's been a rough road. Don't, don't doubt me, because I'm not Jesus. <laughs> my job's to point her to Jesus. I'm not the lover of the story. Jesus is the lover of the story. And I struggle to do that, and she struggles to do that for me, and we struggle together, and we fight together. But you know what? I always come back to how we came together and how I promised and how she promised and how God put us together and that she really was the one that stuck out among all the women to the point where I avoided her like we see in the story. I'm like, I don't want to be around her. Something bad's going to happen. So when I read this, I just, it humbles me, reminds me that I got a long way to go. And i got to keep pointing her and pointing myself to the lover of our souls. Proverbs says this, many women are capable, but you surpass them all. Proverbs 31, charm is deceptive, 
Beauty's fleeting. Y'all going to get ugly, by the way. I don't know if you know that. You will. You will. Like, I don't think anybody looks at someone who's like 90, skin's all falling off, you know, right? And to be like, ooh, she's hot. That, eh. Like, it's, we just, it, it's a part of the curse. We, we break down. Our bodies break down, right? But this man doesn't love her because of all these things. Remember, she said, I'm not pretty because I've had to work. And he's like, I love your work. I want to highlight how much you work. I want people to see that. And he says, but a woman who fears the Lord she will be praised. Goes on, but you don't believe. You're, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Never, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Can I just tell you the reason we have fathers give their daughters away because we had a father that gave his son away. That when the entourage leaves the father's home and goes and gets the daughter, the father kisses his daughter and gives the daughter to the man to take back to their home, to start something new. That he subverts his authority and puts that man in the position of authority. See, that's the beauty of this, is that Jesus says, I'm under my father. I'm listening. My, my father is going to tell me when to go get my sheep. Song of Solomon 2, 3, and 4 says, Like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young women. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with love. There's a song that says, He brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love, sweet love. It's after this verse, by the way. Jesus said it this way. Then he told him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, come, because everything's now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a field, and I must go and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another one said, I bought a five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to, to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I just got married, and therefore, I'm unable to come. So the slave came back and reported the things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his slave, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the slave said, what you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told the slave, go out into the highways, the lanes, and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be mine. He cannot be my beloved, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The love that you have for me has to be like the love of Song of Solomon. Like that, that's what this measurement is. He goes on and it says, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apricots. These were considered aphrodisiacs, by the way, in this day. Raisins and apricots dried up were, were considered like an aphrodisiac to make you more ready. <laughs> For I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head and his right arm embraces me. You get the picture? <laughs> that, that's intimate. That's close. Like, whoo. 
Psalm says this, sustain me as you promised and I will live. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Sustain me so that I may be safe and always be be concerned about your statutes. The psalmist says, I need sustaining that can only come from you. Raisins and apricots aren't going to do it. They're nice to have, not going to sustain me. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. This phrase is used multiple times in the book. It's a phrase that means a lot. It's a phrase that that this woman is looking and she's saying, ladies, pray for me because I don't want to awaken love before it happens and I hope that you challenge me not to awaken a love before it's ready. Do not let me go get the lover I want. Help me to be focused on my lover and help me to be focused on him in the right way, not how I want him when I want him, but when he says it's time for me to come. That's what this means. She's like, man, I want to awaken love now. I want it now. And we live in a world that keeps telling Christians, you can bring the kingdom now. You can have it now. Your best life now. (sighs) Yes, God wants to be intimate with you. He wants to love you. Yes, it's great. But that we're waiting for the best life. He goes on, he says this in Titus, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lusts, And to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for him a people for his own possession. A people eager to do good works. We're not doing good works so he'll marry us. We're doing good works because he's already promised and been betrothed to us. And we say, I just want to get ready for you. Why is that so hard for people to understand? Like, this is our God, and it's not like the other gods of this world. He goes on, and he says in Acts, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Are you coming to get the bride? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. I'm waiting for the Father. I'm listening to the Father. When Dad says it's time to go, I'll go. You just get yourself ready. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, power to get yourself ready and to help others be ready and to go find the lost sheep. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, to the ends of this earth. In other words, you're going to be going and telling about this love. You're going to be telling about what's getting ready to come. You're going to be excited. You're going to delight in more than anything else what's getting ready to come. And then he says, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. Like, yeah. <laughs> now what? <laughs> He'll come back for you. He's still waiting to come back. He's still getting people ready as we speak. And as we wrap up this morning, let me just show you. Just as Jesus disappeared, look at the longing. Listen. listen. And this is the woman, not the man speaking. Ignore the M. should be a W. It says, listen. My love is approaching. Look, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My love is like a gazelle or a young stag. That's a crazy, wild stallion horse (laughs) who doesn't know how to control himself. Anyway, okay. Look, he's standing behind our wall, gazing through the window, peering through the lattice. My love calls to me. 
We have a God that has gone to heaven and Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to call us to him. That he's peeking into our heart. He's, he, he's saying, I'm getting you ready. I see you. I see, not, not time yet. I see you though. It's good. Like the longing that you should feel in your relationship with Christ of being like, I want to be with him, but he's told me to wait and to serve him and to be, and like get other people ready. So I'm going to do that. Oh, but I want to be with you. And Hello, that's the whole book. That's a normal relationship with the God of the universe, and it's a normal relationship that you should have with your spouse. This longing that, and if you're not having that relationship, you should ask yourself why. If you don't have that relationship with Christ, if he's not that delightful to you, if your spouse isn't that delightful to you, can I just tell you, it's probably not them. It's probably you. You have a problem. There's something broken in you. Maybe you believe the lies like the woman did about who she is and that she can, her vineyard's gone and she can never give her. Maybe, maybe you're too prideful and you, you aren't like the prodigal son who comes and says, I'm not worthy. And the father's lavishing you with kisses and you just keep pushing him away and saying, I'm just going to be a slave. Don't touch me. And I, I don't know where you're at, but I am telling you, this book, oh, it is like God is saying, that. I know it's weird, I know it's awkward, but the only reason is because we've made it awkward. Everything, the marriage relationship is supposed to point to God. Earlier in the book, she says that you are a garden to me, like the valley of Engedi. Do you remember where Adam and Eve started? It was in a garden. They were together in a garden and God made, presented her, that means Jesus was probably in the garden and walked him and gave her to Adam and said, here you go. And Adam was like, whoa, man. Like, and then God watched them have sex. He watched them figure out their parts because he's like, that's not, a, I don't have that part. She has that part. What? Oh, look, it fit. Oh, wow. Like, God participated in that. Beautiful. It's how he decided he was going to bring life into the world. And that's why when he talks about how we're to live our lives, he's like, I want the love that you have for one another, the bride of Christ in marriages, the boundaries that I've set. I want you to know and live by those because if you don't, you're going to miss this. And I don't want you to miss this. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you for this book. Lord, forgive us for not knowing Forgive us for reading this book from a selfish perspective, to read this book for what we want and for physical but never the spiritual. Lord, help us to see the truths behind these words that yes, this is a real marriage, this is a real relationship and it is a real reflection of who you are, that you have chosen the imagery they use all through the scriptures to reveal who you are to us. And you've put us in your proper order as male and female. You've ordered things the way you want them to be ordered, not because you're trying to keep us from something, but because you're trying to prepare us for something incredible. And so, Father, I pray that if anyone here is not taking their delight in you, Lord, I pray that they would see that, that you want to clothe them. You want to put a necklace around them. You, you see the value in who they are. And Lord, I thank you for your church, the bride of Christ, that we can encourage one another to help us see you this way, to see the full picture of who you are.
And I thank you that you created us male and female. And there's a lot of books that talk about war and responsibility. And I thank you that you put this book there that talks more about the romance and the care that is the feminine side of kind of who you are. And so, Lord, I praise you. Help us to to see you. Help us to love you. Help us to delight in you, to just smile because of who you are and what you've done. We pray in your name. Would you be our delight? Would you be our love? Amen.